Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Runaway Eve. I am sitting in my kitchen and one, it smells fucking amazing in here because I just got done meal prepping for the week and I made this like spicy teriyaki e um like ground turkey concoction that I'm gonna eat on top of rice and I have to say I made my own like garlic chili like crunchy oil stuff and I put a bunch of that in there and I just yeah my kitchen smells amazing my window is also open because it's beautiful outside today is my perfect ideal weather and I'm gonna enjoy it so my window is open so if the sound is a little weird or you hear outside noises coming in uh sorry but it's a beautiful day and I want to have my window open so here I am but enough about that dumb shit so I hope you're all doing well it's been a long month it's been a lot of me still just trying to adjust to the ways that my life has changed over the past couple months and I am really enjoying things but also I've been so tired I've been so exhausted just not even physically but like mentally emotionally even I've just been so tired so I hope you're all doing well if you're like me and are really feeling the time change really feeling you know a lot of people and I guess to an extent I'm the same way too a lot of people really feel the 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 shift the transition from from um summer into fall and then fall into winter like I feel like that's when a lot of people with seasonal affective disorder like that's when it's really bad for them I have a really hard time with the transition from winter into spring I don't know why I want to be alive and awake and you know out in the sun like everybody else but it's a hard time of year for me and so this year seems to be a little harder than years past and I don't really know why so I'm just trying to lean into that and take care of myself in the best ways that I can and lately that's been a lot of rest it's been a lot of giving myself a ton of grace and a lot of being patient with myself but I think that things are starting to get a little better I'm starting to adjust I'm starting to get used to a new schedule and and all of that so if you're like me and you've been struggling a little bit I I hope that you are taking care of yourself I hope that you are finding ways to handle it and deal with it um today we're gonna continue the conversation that we started with uh the February episode on Christian dating and courtship so here's the thing I noticed that so far as we've been covering this topic, I feel like we have mostly been talking about younger people, things like dating in your teens, all of that. And that makes sense because many people in the culture do get married young, and this is especially true for evangelical women. I found a really interesting statistic from an organization called the Institute for Family Studies. And I want to preface this by saying that this is absolutely a religious-leaning, conservative-leaning organization. It doesn't come out right and say that on their website, but it took two seconds of, of Googling for me to be like, oh yeah, no, this is, this is a conservative outlet. This is a religious outlet, uh, specifically a Christian outlet. So anything presented as fact should be taken with a grain of salt. 
and I'll get more into that in a minute. But based on my own experience, this totally tracks. So an article titled The Religious Marriage Paradox, Younger Marriage, Less Divorce, states the following. Overall, then, religion greatly influences the nature and age of relationship formation. Young women raised in a religious home cohabit less, but they marry more, and especially earlier. In this sample, tracking marriage patterns over the last 40 years, women with non-religious upbringings wed around age 25, religious women wed around generally age 24, and women with evangelical Protestant upbringings wed around 23.5. So what they're saying is when they say cohabitless, what they mean by that in this specific article is these people lived with a partner before marriage less. So young women raised in a religious home live with their partner before actually marrying them less often, but they marry more often um, and do marry earlier. So 23 and a half is the the average age as they're presenting it for evangelical christian women um to marry to get married now what the article doesn't account for in their mind-blowing finding that amongst religious specifically evangelical christian people those who marry younger tend to divorce less is actually pretty glaring to me divorce is extremely looked upon looked down upon uh in this culture and in many churches and many circles it's not even seen as an option this is of course something that i've experienced anecdotally you can talk to any any number of people who have been in these churches who have been in this culture and they'll say pretty much the same thing um there have even been instances where there have been cases of abuse where pastors and and elders and church leaders really tried to discourage divorce as an option so so in many cases it's not an option um i can think of two couples who divorced in the almost 20 years that i was a member of of the church one uh put each other through very apparent and visible trauma in the lead up to finally ending things and the other divorced and then actually remarried each other (laughs) and I remember the huge celebration that we as a church had when they did the right thing and got remarried another aspect of romantic relationships in the culture that this article doesn't seem to bring up is the fact that especially when it comes to courtship dating is a contract yes in general we as a society view marriage as a binding lifelong commitment between two people But in Christian culture, it's usually seen as a contract involving not just the two people getting married, but their families, their church, their mentors. There's really no room for the possibility of growing apart. There's no room to change your mind. Divorce rates are going to be lower when divorce isn't even an option for you. But I digress. I say all of this to say that in evangelical Christian culture, dating, courtship, and marriage all tend to happen pretty young. So of course, when we talk about these practices, we're generally talking about young people. I can't remember if I mentioned this in my last episode or not, but when I think back on my time in the church and I think about who was married and who wasn't, there are three women that stand out prominently in my mind. And I want to point out that I saw 
unmarried women a very specific way that I did not see unmarried men. Uh, and I think, I think that's a general attitude in the church. It's not, I, I know that using the word problematic seems kind of strong. It's not as problematic for, for a, a man in his 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever, to be unmarried as it is for a woman. Uh, there's a lot, I mean, that, and that's a cultural thing beyond religion. Um, I think we live in a society where women are seen as existing on borrowed time in a way. There's definitely cultural capital in being younger, specifically for women, but, but that definitely comes into play uh, in the church. And so these, these three women do stand out in my mind. Um, one was older. Uh, she was an older woman who had never married, and that is exactly how I thought of her. Older, who had never married. As if that was a door that had closed. When I was talking about this with my therapist, I came to the realization that this woman, when I first became consciously aware of the fact that she was not married, and this was around the same time that I learned the, what the word celibate means, she was probably in her late 20s or early 30s, probably no older than I am now. And it's funny because I think back on this person and I think when I was talking about this with my therapist, I remembered people kind of handled her in a way that it was very apparent that people felt bad for her. I mentioned that this is when I learned what the word celibate means because I remember having a conversation with my mom where she explained to me that this woman had chosen celibacy and I don't think I had much of an opinion of that at the time beyond just being very very aware of how the church looked at her not in any necessarily bad way but just in kind of a sad way, like as if the life that she was living was some sort of consolation prize. And and the really interesting thing is now looking back on her, I mean, she had a house. She had a really cool job. She was actually a music teacher at a school, like always going on trips. She taught like an award-winning choir, like always doing really cool things like with her work. She was involved in the church in ways that were really interesting. I don't think that she led a bad life, but that was really, really the, the attitude surrounding her was that this was some sort of consolation prize because she didn't get married, because she didn't have kids. Yeah, so it was kind of strange. The next person that stands out in my mind was a girl who was definitely closer to my age. I think she's probably five to eight years older than me, maybe. She was this goofy weirdo who was really sweet, but really weird. I remember not liking her, but I think that's probably because I saw a lot of what I hated about myself in her, to be honest. I watched the cool kids date around her, but she never participated, and I always wondered if that was a choice, if she too was choosing celibacy, like I'd been told about the other lady, or if she was just unlucky or unwanted. I actually just looked her up on Facebook while I was preparing for this episode, and it looks like she's still single. 
Um, just like the other person, it looks like she's living a pretty cool life. I know that we all, you know, put a certain face out into the world uh, on social media, but she looks happy. So I hope she is. The third person was another lady who I always kind of looked up to. She was also very sweet, super kind, very pretty, a plus size queen who I always felt kind of bad for because as I developed a better relationship with my body, it became more and more apparent to me how much she loathed her own. She too was always single in my mind until she wasn't. She ended up getting married, a wedding that I attended when she was probably in her early 30s. It seemed to come out of nowhere. I could go on and on about what garbage this man is for what it's worth. For example, he is, or maybe was, I'm not really sure. I don't follow these people anymore but um at one point he was a journalist and once wrote an article about how Kristen Smart the girl from Cal Poly who disappeared one night after a party basically brought it on herself for going to a party and drinking just the way that she was but I digress again um anyway this wonderfully vibrant caring woman married a gross man who probably doesn't deserve her and I wonder if he was just the first person who wanted her So yeah, much of the dating and marriage that happens in evangelical Christian culture happens young or doesn't happen at all, specifically for women. But what about those like the the woman I just mentioned, who do marry when they're older? What about people in the culture who just blossom later and decide to start dating or even courting when they are a bit older? How do they navigate that? I think one of the most jarring realizations for people not familiar with the culture is that Pretty much everything I've said about courtship and Christian dating so far are applicable to adults too. If you're keeping up with the book club, Josh Harris's book was written for a young adult audience. I wanted this episode to focus more on adults dating, but to be honest, the majority of the information and advice that I found was more or less the same as that which is geared towards teens. That in and of itself might seem strange, But when you think about it in the culture, the assumption is that adults are approaching dating from the same perspective as teens. Think about it. Casual dating is discouraged. Any sort of physical intimacy outside of marriage is discouraged. Hanging out solo with the gender you're attracted to, presumably in Christian culture, the opposite gender, is discouraged. Mixed company activities and events are overseen, chaperoned, policed even. This doesn't stop when you hit a certain age. In the church I grew up in, there was literally a group called College and Career, or something like that. It always struck me as an extension of youth group for adults that weren't yet married. And now that I think about it, I don't think there were any unmarried people in any of the other Sunday school groups at the church. So... The church that I grew up in, and it's my understanding that this is similar at at just churches, uh, Christian churches in general, but there was Sunday school for kids, divided by age group, of course. There was the junior high youth group, there was the high school youth group, and then there was this like college and career sort of catch-all for adults that didn't really fit in anywhere else. And then I don't even remember how the adult Sunday school groups were divided. I don't think I ever, ever knew or understood. But I remember there was one that was like more elderly couples. There was the one that was that my parents were involved in that were kind of 
I guess maybe younger married couple or, or like married couples with, with kids that were younger than there was one that was like married couple with kids that were older, but I never, I, I never fully understood it, but that's kind of how, how it existed, how Sunday school, how things like Bible study operated. It was all really separated out like that. And there was the group for specifically unmarried young adults and yeah even that in and of itself is kind of weird because why why does it matter i just thinking back i i really can't think of any reason why these groups were separated other than age it seems like that's the only the only thing that stands out in my mind i should ask my mom i should ask my mom about this and see if there was anything else because i'm sure certainly like the topics that the groups were studying and covering were probably different, probably but probably geared more towards like age groups. But if that's the case, why weren't the unmarried college and career people welcomed in into the other groups? It, it's just it's really strange in my mind. But that's that's kind of where where I'm coming from is most people at that point were married or were very close to marriage with a partner. And if they weren't, there was just there was just this kind of like catch all basket for them because they didn't fit in anywhere else because they didn't have kids and weren't married. Very strange. But anyway, not to get too off topic. So, yeah, the advice uh, is the same because the level of of experience, the perspective, the the expectation is the same. And I do want to mention one article that I found that seems to be geared more towards adults. That was somewhat refreshing compared to everything else that I've talked about and everything else that I know about dating in the culture. When I say refreshing, I'm specifically talking about the fact that the author clearly explains that, you know, evangelical Christians try to approach dating from a biblical perspective but there's actually no rules about dating in the Bible, which I'm grateful. I, that's why I say refreshing. I'm grateful that he's saying this because too often, as even people outside of the culture are well aware, Christians will take the Bible and try to apply it to everything, especially things that they want to police or enforce or change. And oftentimes they are, if there's anything in the Bible even remotely related to what they're talking about or trying to do, they're usually twisting what's actually in the Bible. But sometimes there's not even anything in the Bible related to what they're trying to do. Does the Bible talk about abortion? I mean, I don't think so, but yet here we are. And so it's cool that this person is just like, you know, you have people, he mentions Josh Harris, you have people like Josh Harris, you have this whole movement in the 90s and early aughts that are trying to get young Christians to approach dating from a biblical worldview, but there's actually nothing in the Bible about dating specifically, especially not our contemporary idea of what dating or even courtship is. So yes, that's very refreshing to me. He also makes it very clear that 
God offers no guarantee that you'll find a perfect spouse. And I think this is something that's really important, especially for women in the culture, because we're taught that, you know, just pray and focus on God and do your Bible study, do your devotions, um, picture your ideal mate, picture your future husband, think about your future husband, do everything for and with your future husband in mind. But the reality is there's no guarantee, especially if you're not doing anything except sitting around reading your Bible and praying. There's no guarantee that you're going to find a spouse, let alone your perfect ideal match. And so it's nice that that is also something that is mentioned in this article, especially because, like I said, I feel like this article is geared more towards adults. That being said, he also brings up two tried and true aspects of evangelical Christian dating that we've talked about already. They are first, main, what he says, what he calls maintaining a proper perspective which also known as centering God. Uh, I think this is, I'm pretty sure I, I did mention this in the last episode in part one, but this idea of, of keeping God at the center of what you're doing and what, what you want kind of, kind of overarches across just the, the general Christian experience. But especially when it comes to dating or seeking out like a perfect match, seeking out a spouse. The idea is that you should keep God at the center of that. Keep God as the focus. I mean, even again, if you're following along with the book club, Josh Harris talks about that. You know, Josh talked about focusing on God in place of the, the participating in what he calls the world's idea of dating. So, This is nothing new. Maintaining a proper perspective, keeping your eyes on God, keeping God at the center of of what you're doing, that is nothing new. And so in this article, that is something that is being suggested to people who want to date uh, and approach dating in a way that honors God. The other thing that is nothing new to us at this point is the importance of what else? purity. So again, even as adults, you should remain pure and save sex or any sort of physical intimacy for marriage. And I'm not even going to talk about it because it's been done and I plan on recording the next installment of the book club shortly after this. So we will get more into purity and all that in Josh's book, undoubtedly. And that is also a topic that I want to cover specifically, probably over the summer. So we'll sit on that. But we all know it's a thing. We all know that sex or any type of of physical intimacy is pretty much forbidden, especially when you're just, you know, trying to get to know someone. So that's not a part of dating. It's not a part of Christian courtship or dating at all. So it is what it is. So Of course, we couldn't have an article about the ways Christians should approach dating without making mention of purity. So with all that being said, I do want to talk about two more interesting or damaging aspects of evangelical Christian courtship and dating that 
these are both things that I've been well aware of, but they came up in my research in really interesting ways. And so I want to discuss them. So let's start with evangelical views of women. So I stumbled upon this article that somehow managed to blow my mind, even though the information presented is not surprising to me in the slightest. Basically, the author of this article, Armando Hernandez, cites research and analysis done by another person, Joshua Wu, that shows the patriarchal and misogynistic tendencies and beliefs that are prevalent among evangelical men. And I'm linking to both in the show notes. Please do check them out because they're both fascinating. Even if, like me, you're like, well, duh. (laughs) So on one hand, you have Hernandez, who is citing Wu's research and seems to be approaching it from a place of recognition. This is real. Regardless of the strides the church has made, regardless of the ways that some men in the church might be shocked by these findings, and, and Hernandez does does cite some some I think he's I think he's on a on a college campus. He does cite some students that are surprised by these findings. So regardless of all of this. The reality is that these are the beliefs that are held by the majority of men in the culture. He discusses the theology and historical context for these beliefs, specifically citing 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. He says, Paul famously remarks that women are not permitted, quote, to teach or to exercise authority over a man, which excludes them from holding leadership positions in the church thus causing the conflict of maintaining traditional teachings and progressive ideals to emerge. But let's talk a little bit about uh, Joshua Wu's research first. And I, it's really interesting to me because, and I'm not going to lie, I was, I was uh, doing a little prep work for this. I was actually sitting in a Starbucks and I read the first little bit of of his article where he's presenting his findings and I literally laughed out loud and here's why Joshua Wu starts off his article by by explaining that he was you know he there was data that he collected from this study um, and that he was analyzing it to to find out information on the attitudes of evangelical men with regard to women (laughs) he says after he introduces um, this this topic in that way he says i hoped to find that evangelicals especially evangelical men had better perceptions and valuing of women than non-evangelicals after all churches teach that men and women are made in imago dei which basically the image of god Women had radically empowered roles of leadership and influence in both the Old and New Testament compared to contemporary cultural practice, and almost all churches, regardless if they hold to egalitarian or complementarian doctrine, teach that men and women are equal before God. However, I found the opposite to be true. <laughs> and this is this is where I laughed, because what <laughs> fantasy world are you living in? <laughs> Where you think that evangelical Christianity has high regard for women. I'm laughing now because it's hilarious to me. But anyway, let's continue. Joshua Wu approaches this 
looking at two separate attitudes. He says, the first attitude I analyzed was whether someone was more comfortable with a male over female boss. And as I'm sure you can imagine, evangelical men were more likely to prefer a male boss to a female boss. The second attitude basically deals with um, the belief that women who complain about harassment are causing problems. And again, as I'm sure you can imagine, nearly half of evangelical men agree with that statement, that women who complain about harassment are causing problems. He says, considering these two attitudes together, there is strong evidence that evangelical men are significantly more likely than non-evangelical men to hold patriarchy and misogyny tendencies, if not preferences. So it's pretty glaring, right? And again, I laughed because I think it's funny that this person exists in a world where he truly was surprised by this when it's not surprising to me at all maybe it's because i am a woman maybe it's because i was a woman in the culture i don't know it's not surprising to me whatsoever so having these statistics having these facts are it it is very glaring so going back to Armando Hernandez's article where he's referencing this analysis, I want to point out that one of the, I guess, least satisfying things about his article, again, it's very refreshing to me that he was approaching it from a place of, yeah, this happens, what are we going to do about it? But again, he's on a college campus and he, and he cites conversations with people on that campus throughout the article and one of the least satisfying things is that there seems to be this attitude of wow that sucks but you know we should respect women more there's no like wow yeah this is real harm that is being done towards women through these attitudes we need to work on ourselves in order to work on undoing these attitudes in this culture. There's there's literally someone that he cites who says something like, you know, men and women are different. That's just biology. They have different roles in the church that they need to play, but what we need to do is just treat each other nicely. And it's like, no. Are you fucking kidding me? That is so problematic. That is almost as problematic as these statistics in and of themselves. I don't want to be treated nicely i want to be given the same opportunity as a man i want you to do something about the fact that 49 percent of white evangelical men believe that it's a fucking problem when women speak out against harassment half 49 percent. that is practically half of white evangelical men sit with this let this sink in 49 percent, according to joshua Wu's statistics 49% of white evangelical men have a problem with women speaking out against harassment. But yeah, let's treat each other nicely. That'll work. That'll fix it. So I wanted to bring this up because this is connected to dating to me. I mean, if men 
if half of the men in the church hold these beliefs, and I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say it's way more than half, this sample, it might have been 49% or um, you know, the, the different breakdown, again, it's linked, please, if you're interested, go, go take a look, look at the breakdown, look at the percentages. But I would, I would feel very confident in saying it's more than half. It's a lot more than half. If, if that many men in this culture hold these attitudes, these patriarchal misogynistic attitudes towards women, what does that say about dating and courtship in this culture? Do you think that that might have something to do with why women marry so young? Do you think that that might have something to do with why women who are a little more outspoken or have who, who have cool jobs or uh, might not be conventionally attractive don't get married at all? Because I do. I do. I, I definitely think that these that these uh, these attitudes and these findings say a f- whole fucking lot about the fucked up state of courtship and Christian dating. But. Let's let's look at one very specific thing that I've already mentioned. It came up. Let's look at complementarianism because that is something that is very prevalent in evangelical Christianity, even today. Um, we are, I mean, I think we as a society are are moving away from this idea that uh, you know women serve certain roles and are unable to serve certain roles. I think generally speaking, we are moving away from that, but. Even still, uh, in, in many Christian circles, this is still something that many people believe in. So let's get into a discussion of complementarianism. In very, very basic terms, complementarianism is the belief that men complement women, women complement men. Essentially, women and men hold very specific, very rigid gender roles, especially when it comes to marriage. And so right off the bat, this is problematic. It's, it's very um, binary. Uh, it's very heteronormative. Um, all that aside, I, I mean, that's, that's just, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay the way that those things are, are problematic and damaging. But at this point in this culture, that's just a given. So another thing that I want to point out is that the idea of complementarianism, while the roots, of course, date back to the Old Testament, roots in Adam and Eve and the the fall of man and all of that, the idea of complementarianism is really not that old. So I am referencing a really great article. It's also linked. Please, if you're even remotely interested in this topic, please take a look at it and give it a read. Um, it's very interesting. It's called How Complementarianism, the Belief that God Assigned Specific Gender Roles, Became Part of Evangelical Doctrine. And I want to just read a part of this article. This is written by a person named Susan M. Shaw, They are professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Oregon State. So Susan says, In the 1970s, the women's movement began to make inroads into a number of arenas in the U.S., including work, education, and politics. Many Christians, including evangelicals, came to embrace egalitarianism and to champion women's equality in the home, church, and society. 
In response, in 1977, Evangelical Biblical Studies professor George Knight III published a book, New Testament Teaching on the Role Relationship of Men and Women, and introduced a new interpretation of role differences. Other Evangelical Biblical Studies professors, such as Wayne Grudem and John Piper, began to write about submission and headship in the mid-1980s and early 1990s, making the claim that women's submission to men was not, as many Christians at the time believed, a result of the fall in the Garden of Eden when Eve and Adam ate the forbidden fruit. Rather, they argued, the requirement for women's submission was part of the created order. Men, they explained, were created to rule and women were created to obey. Susan goes on to explain that in 1987, a group of these of these um, evangelical thought leaders gathered together to begin preparing a statement. This statement became known as the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and it essentially laid out the core beliefs of this idea of complementarianism. So yeah, you heard me right, and I read that right. This started this was indoctrinated in 1987 yes it's based on ideas that come straight from the bible it's not just based on adam and eve in the garden there are a lot of parts of the bible there's a lot of scripture that can be used to back this up do i think that this is another case of a group of men taking scripture and twisting it to fit their agenda 100 percent But at the same time, there's a lot of misogyny in the Bible, so it's tricky. But but the the point I want to hammer home here is that this this has not been around forever. This started 40 years ago, almost. It's very, very new. Around the same time that this statement was drafted, an organization called the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood was created. And Susan, in their article, says the goal of the council was to influence evangelicals to adopt the principles of complementarianism in their homes, churches, schools, and other religious agencies. And so, again, it wasn't enough for these these people, this group of men, to draft this statement, to put it, put this idea out there. They literally formed this organization to make sure that evangelical churches took up this belief and started putting it into practice. Apparently, while evangelical churches at large started, you know, making this part of their part of their belief systems, the Southern Baptist Convention was the one that really, really took it and ran with it. In 1998, the Baptist Faith and Message, which is the Southern Baptist Convention's confessional statement, which is basically just uh, a document that um, when when you become a part of the church, you agree that you believe with you believe in it and you agree with it. So that document was amended in 1998 to include this new idea of complementarianism. And I want to read a section from this document that Susan included in the article. It says, a wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. 
She, being in the image of God as is her husband and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. And this language here, oh my God, okay, this is why I wanted to read this. This language is so important because remember, this conversation amongst Piper and the other person and, and all those like thought leaders started directly in response to what was happening in the 70s, the women's movement, the feminist, the like early feminist movements. At the time, many Christians were starting to embrace egalitarianism, were starting to you know, champion women's rights. And, and there was a lot of overlap between what was happening in the social sphere and what was happening in the church. These people didn't like that. So that's why I wanted to read this section because as you like, as, as you can see, they use language like both men and women are created in the image of God. So they're equal. The wife is equal to her husband. It's just that that God gave them different responsibilities and God gave them different roles and God happened to give the wife the role of serving the husband. Bullshit. That is such complete bullshit. And in this moment, I'm finding myself really, really wishing that I had been alive at this time. Because this is just, this is appalling. This is, it's hilarious to me and how, how it, ugh, I'm, rendered speechless, which doesn't happen very often. But uh, I also want to point out, uh, it says the wife is, it, c it compares the wife serving the husband to the church submitting to Christ, which is an interesting analogy because they're basically comparing the husband to God. So that's fun. <laughs> but anyway, that was in 1998 it's only gotten worse. I guess in some ways it's gotten better. We, we, you know, we just talked about this, this article written by Armando Hernandez, where he, he seemed to recognize that, yeah, there are these attitudes in the church and what are we going to do about them? So I guess in some ways things have improved, but this is history in the making. This is what happens when men react to egalitarianism. This is what happens when men who hold these beliefs react to the idea of women's rights being expanded and we get complementarianism. So like I, like I said before I started talking about this, this is something that still exists. There are absolutely still plenty of churches in the evangelical Christian faith that believe in complementarianism and see, uh, you know, men and women having very separate roles and marriage being a very specific type of relationship where the husband and the wife act a very specific way. But yeah, I just want to point out again that that's not something that has been around forever, been around for about 40 years. So yeah. And like with our discussion just a bit ago on misogyny and patriarchy in the church. How might this relate to courtship and dating? But to me, that's pretty obvious. I think it says a lot about courtship practices. Again, it says a lot about this idea of women marrying younger. I mean, it's a lot easier to control 
a 23-year-old than it is to control a 33-year-old. So I think that all of these ideas are very intertwined. And to me, it all just it all just lends itself to how problematic Christian ideas around dating and courtship and marriage and romantic relationships and sexual relationships don't get me started on the idea of a sexual relationship in, within this realm of complementarianism. Gross. Um, that's a whole other conversation that we'll, we will get to at some point. But to me, it all goes it all goes hand in hand. It's all it's all just part of how problematic and how damaging these beliefs can be, especially for women. And I'm getting a little tired. I'm getting a little loopy. So I'm going to leave it there. When next you hear from me, it'll be the second installment of the book club. And from there, I'm not really sure where we're going to go, but stay tuned. As always, I am so glad you're here. I thank you for joining me. I thank you for listening and I'll catch you in the next one. Bye.